Welcome to this episode of The Rise After the Fall. I'm Sean Hennessy, Senior Pastor of Life Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I am joined by my co-host and my lovely bride, Pastor Sunny Hennessy. She is the lead pastor here at Life Church in Green Bay. And we have a special guest today, Sunny. I'm going to have you go ahead and introduce our guest. Yes. So we had someone reach out to us after listening to the podcast and Henny and I, who is with us today, talked about her story and she just has such a great attitude after going through, honestly, a living hell and that's gone on for years, but she just has let God sustain her. And so Henny, I would love if you would start with what you do now, uh, where you're at right now, and then we'll back up and hear your story more from the beginning, but tell us about what you're doing now and more about you. Um, I'm Henny, and I am right now, I'm the state chapter leader with the Stop Abuse Campaign in Ohio. And um, we, I do a lot of legislative work. And so there is a lot of domestic violence situations in every state and a lot of education is needed. And there are a lot of laws that that needs to be passed because domestic violence victims, they kind of fall between the crack with the systems. And so that is the work what I do to help domestic violence victims to get uh, help that they need, the resources, and also educate all the professionals like uh, judges, prosecutors, police, counselors, pastors, to educate them more about domestic violence so that they can get the help that they really need to be free of abuse. Uh, thank you. And I, I want to dig into, to start with some of the legislation that you've helped pass in Ohio. Uh, you actually, and we'll get to this later, but your ex-husband was a missionary and a worship pastor. Uh, and so that's why this definitely falls under the, you know, the subject matters we cover in the rise after the fall. But Henny, tell us what is some of the legislation that you've helped pass so far? So I I wanted to pass the Safe Child Act in Ohio that because a lot of in the court system, people, the professionals are not educated. And so I worked on getting judges educated uh, counselors, prosecutors, and the police. So they learn more about how abusers, they use the system. So when you leave, it's not over. So then they use the system, the court system, to continue the abuse. And so they set it all up. So a lot of times the abuser becomes the victim and a lot of professionals don't recognize that so they believe the abusers that they are victims and all of a sudden the the domestic violence victim the women and the children they become the abuser and they they get punished for things that they didn't do and so they don't get any help either and so what I did is I talked a lot with legislators then um, I helped pass the law I, Alicia's Law, and she was a woman, she was married to a judge, and she got stabbed 40 times, and she was not believed. And so she was like a great example of someone who was very educated, come from a good family, and she wasn't believed, and she did all the right things. And so I held passing the law, I gave the, uh, the U.S. representative the research from the U.S. Justice Department with facts how when women come to court and they flee or they want to divorce, they are not believed. And even when there is proof of abuse, the, the there's no protections for the women and they do not get believed by the police. It starts with counselors, with doctors and with judges. So educating all these professionals is really important so they understand how abusers manipulate and use the system. So that actually got passed in Ohio. A lot about the education, what was really a big thing, and also that it got passed that the Supreme Court in Ohio is going to look about where the system fails domestic violence victims. So that was a very big thing. Uh, you said so much there. It, it's almost overwhelming when you hear that for the first time. 
uh, a question I think that pops up in my mind is you had said that uh, abusers use the system to help continue the abuse by making themselves the victim. Is it? Is there a way that you could kind of tangibly or practically flesh that out so that a layman can kind of under, because when I hear that, I go, how's that even possible? It seems so, it seems impossible for that to take place. But clearly, if we need to pass a law against that, can you flesh that out, Henny? How does that look? How do they do that? What does that mean to a layman? So um, a lot of things, what people think of an abuser, when they picture that, they think of this evil man who's aggressive and violent and really bad. And so they have this picture of what an abuser is. So one of the things that abusers do is they're very good in keeping it behind closed doors. But on the outside, in the public, they have this image. They created this image of themselves. So that already makes for the victim really hard to be believed. For example, if your husband is a pastor, or in this case, her husband was a judge, or I know of a case her husband is an, the assistant of the prosecutor, uh, of the attorney general, or works with the police department. And so they have an image in the community. If you come out as a woman and say, my husband, who is the prosecutor or the judge, or who's the pastor or worship leader or a missionary, he is abusive, then people are going to look how he behaved in public and they're like, no, this is such a nice man. He is he's so kind. He does such a good work in the community. That cannot be true. So that's like one of the things where abusers are very good at that. And let's go into your story a bit. Your husband uh, was a missionary and a worship pastor. And so when you came forward and said that he was abusing you, uh, and you had two children. I mean, from what you've said, you're much smaller than your husband, but he turned people to believe that you actually were abusing him. Can you talk about that? Yes. I, My husband, we were both missionaries and we met in mission and then we got married and we got two children. And for me, that was exactly what happened. So outside in public, everybody saw, uh, they knew that we were um, missionaries. They looked at my husband. He was funny. He was kind. He knew a lot about the Bible. And so people had this image of me, but behind closed doors, he was very, he would, he was very violent with me to a point that I literally had to flee for the safety of myself and my two children. They were like three and four. So I had to run away. And then I thought that I had to run away and then I could reach out to the church and the church would like embrace me because I thought that is the place is a shelter, right? For people who are abandoned and alone and hurt. So when I did that, when I, w- I went into a shelter, first I fleed and then I had to figure out where I had to go. So then I went in the shelter. And so when I was in the shelter, I had no idea that my ex my husband at that time, he went into the church and he told people that we had trouble in our marriage and that I was abusive and that he couldn't take it anymore. So then when I came out of the shelter, my friends who I would do like, play dates with and I was so excited to be out of the shelter they the shelter helped me to get a little tiny apartment and I was so excited to reconnect my little toddlers with back with their friends and nobody wanted to hang out with me they they didn't want to talk they didn't want to hang out they acted all of a sudden really weird and then I found out that he he talked with them and he said that I was very abusive and nobody then believes me. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And so in the legislation, I know you said you educate. Are there laws now that, like how do those laws affect this, especially within the church? So one of the things that I, when I finding out through my story was that a lot of people in leadership, they 
they have they meet the people, the domestic violence people. So the the pastors, counselors, teachers, principals, doctors, judges, lawyers, police. They all are involved in those cases, but they have so many other things going on and their work is so many other things. All these professionals do not really have training in domestic violence. They do about they know about it. They have their opinion about it. They also have kind of an idea like everybody knows you need to leave. But people have like this idea of domestic violence and then you leave and then everything will be good. It is basically when you leave and then the hell starts. And so because people are not educated, do not have a lot of knowledge, even when they with good intentions, they really give wrong advice that really causes the domestic, the victim to get stuck in the abuse, the continued abuse of the system. So what I did was the laws need to, the police and the judges, especially also judges, need to be educated because judges don't get special education in domestic violence and abusers. So when you go to court, how the judges look at it is a lot of judges want two parents, even when they divorce, they want to work it out for the sake of their children. What is in, with if you take the domestic violence out, that is a very good standpoint that even though you as adults do not get along for the sake of the children, you're going to do what's best for the children. You put the domestic violence in there, that's not going to work. An abuser is not going to do that. So to have that standpoint, like two parents need to work it out, the abuser is not going to work it out. So what the safety safest thing is for domestic violence is the victim needs to leave and they needs to be separation. So in court, that looks really bad. So the woman, when you do that, and you and because you leave, a lot of times the next step is a divorce. The judge look at it and says, this woman, this woman is using domestic violence and abuse just so she can get custody from the children. And so that is how the judge is going to approach it. And your story is uh, your kids were taken away from you. Tell us about that. Uh, yes. So when I, I was in a shelter, in the woman's shelter, I got a protection order. Then and I was in another county in the shelter than where I lived when I was married. And so the court had to be in the county where we lived. And so that judge, so a different judge gave me the protection order than the judge in the county where we previously lived when we were married. That judge, even though I was in the woman's shelter at the time, and even though I had the protection order, he ordered that I had, that my ex-husband got um, every other weekend regular visitation. So I was forced by the judge to drop off my children at Burger King and do a visitation exchange. And so exchange is you park the car in the same parking lot and my children were three and four. So I I had to drop them off and my children were scared. So there was a lot of drama because my it was so confusing, way much that my children could handle emotionally and what they could grasp with their minds and so I could not say like okay I'm gonna keep in a distance children you go so the basically my protection order had zero function because I was forced because I was ordered to drop off the children and my children really didn't want to go and they begged me and said mommy I don't want to go but I was ordered so I had to do it And so I was every other weekend in the women's shelter. I was alone because my ex-husband who abused me had my children. And that was, I was so, for me, it was so shocking because I was like, 
I, I thought I was going to get the help and the safety and finally I was going to be free and I could start a new life for my children. I was totally not that. So was your husband abusive to your kids as well as to you? Yes. Okay, so you had to take your babies and you had to... Did, when you dropped them off, you had a protection order, but when you dropped them off, did you have... Because they're three and four, I would assume that you had to physically be within proximity and reach of your abusive husband to hand your kids over exactly. to him. And so you're having to be, did, was there a protect? So there was a protection order for you, but they didn't, did they also do a protection order for your kids and you had to break that for both of you? Or was it just that you weren't supposed to be in proximity? Your husband wasn't supposed to be in proximity to you. There was a protection order for me, but not for the children because judges are very hesitant to do that because that all has to do with, okay, then we're going to take the children away from a father. And so that is the, that's why I want to educate and bring awareness that it, this is not the time that, yes, children need a father, but children does not cannot be with a father who is abusive to them and to their mom. And so that is why the judges were, are so hesitant to do that. So I was forced to drop my children off with my ex-husband. And so he was abusive when I was, I could protect him when I was there, when I wasn't there and he had all those explosions, I wasn't able to protect him, but my children couldn't protect themselves because imagine a three and a four-year-old, they, they are scared. They don't know. They just want their mommy. They don't understand why mommy is making them go. So it was just so horrible for my children and then I my children responded to me so even all my feelings that I had to my ex-husband I would put like worship music on I like when I had my weekends I I had a little calendar and it showed them Friday, Saturday, Sunday so we could move it so my children could see when they had to go to daddy so mentally they could prepare it. And then I would do, we did the hours. Then my children in the morning, Sunday morning said, mommy, how many hours till we have to go to daddy? And then I told them the hours and they were like, Is how they were three and four. So I said, we're going to go to church. We're going to have lunch. Then we're going to play a little. And then we're going to go to daddy. So that is like how you put the times for a three and a four-year-old. So I came to a point, my children didn't want to go to church because they said in church and Sunday school, they were separated from me. And they were like, mommy, that is like the little bit of time that I have with you. Now I have to go to Sunday school and I cannot be with you. So church became an issue that I couldn't go. And so that was all like, I was really like forced and then try to explain to your three and four-year-old why you have to bring them to a daddy who is mean. And you said that you you discovered and your lawyers proved that he was sexually molesting one of your children or both? Yes. So that was with my daughter. And I got... He got so he got custody because they said that the only reason that I brought up abuse was because I wanted to have custody, and that was the only reason. So the judge did not believe me at all because I left, and then I then he filed for a divorce, and the judge was like, "That's the only reason she does that." So he then changed the temporary custody and just gave him custody, and then. For me, I w so basically I had then visitation. So then I was trying to get back my children and try to prove that I truly did speak the truth. So, yeah. And I forgot your, what yeah, was your question? Yeah, just that you found out and it was proven in court that he was so oh, yes. sexually molesting your daughter. Yes. So then because he had custody, so all the medical records and all the things he had, he was in charge of that. 
So I, I'm a nurse and my son has a rare disease. So I was, I was in charge of his, his medical things because I am a nurse. So I was very good at handling that. And he was totally not involved in that. So for me, that was really troublesome and really hard. So I wanted to know the medical record so I could see what he was doing, what was going on, so I could help. It took me a year to get the medical records. I fought for a year. Finally, I got them. So then in my innocence, I just thought like the main important thing was my son because he had a rare disease. He's basically almost allergic to all foods. So I... I read and then I looked at my daughters and I saw this name and then I thought, well, this is this is like an STD. That's impossible. And so my daughter was diagnosed with a positive um, STD test. And so all this stuff that they, the court accused me of. So I've already brought it up. CPS was involved at that time. I said that they, she explained told me that she was touched inappropriately and the judge and CPS and the guardian ad litem, they all said that I just was so evil and I just made it up just to separate the children from the father so I could get them. That was, that was everything that I said. That was always the reason. I was just such an evil woman. All My motive was just keeping the children away from the father. So they blew it up really big in court that I was such an evil woman. And then this test came out. And so I was basically proved everybody wrong that it, it was true. Then they sealed the records. They said that they didn't believe the DNA test and they gave him custody again. How old was your daughter at this point? My that was right. That was she was four because but she was four when that happened. So she was really little. And you didn't have your kids for how many years? How many years has it been now? So for that I did then after that, it's a long story. But in short, he just used that part that the judge saw me like as this evil woman that was very manipulative and wanted to only separate the children from the husband. He just used that and he would like cry in court and make it so bad. So I came to a point that he was like, that I was a danger to my children. So I, the judge uh, wanted to put me on supervised visitation. So, but never, the most important thing is that all the accusations that he made of me, were all words. They never brought like evidence that I was a bad mom, that I mistreated the children, that I, nothing, there's nothing all these years. So the judge went purely by what he said and they put me on supervised visitation. And so then I really, in my heart, I felt this is so wrong because I I was a missionary. And you know what I did as a missionary? My strength is working with children. I worked in orphanages. I worked with street children. And so, you know, the show, The Super Nanny, you know, that is me. You can give me children who really misbehave and I can really help children with behavior. So for, for me to to be on supervised visitation without any proof. So I stood before the judge and I said really respectfully, I said, just because you refuse to do the right thing, you cannot make me do the wrong thing. Because I felt he is refusing to admit that he was wrong and that he made a wrong judgment, but now he needs to keep face. So he's going to force me to do the wrong thing so that he can keep looking good. So I said, no. So I said, I'm not going to go to supervised visitation. So I didn't see the children um, for a long time, for a few years, but I talked to them. But that is like recently, the last few years, I didn't get to see them because he escalated the whole situation so much till that he really did separate us. 
But I knew. No, go go ahead. ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. I just wanted to make also clear that the reason that I didn't also refuse to go to supervised visitation because I had all these professionals not believing me. And then I thought, if I go to supervised visitation and that person is not going to believe me, he wanted to, he wanted me to lose parental rights. So that's why I was like, no, I am not going to make him giving him that chance to go that far. So I stopped it there. It, it's unbelievable. I just I can't even wrap my mind around it. Frankly, it's um, heartbreaking to listen to. It's, uh, yeah, that's the word that I would find is that it's heartbreaking. What was he doing career-wise this whole time, this whole process? So th- your kids are three and four. You fled, which you said something interesting is that uh, when you leave, the hell starts. Because I think the natural inclination of anyone in leadership, at least from the church level with the minimal training that we receive, is that the first thing that you would recommend to somebody is that you need to put distance between you and your abuser. But for you to say, when you leave, the hell breaks loose. And obviously, that's been your experience. So they're three and four you're doing visitation with him and then the that gets flipped and suddenly he has your kids. What was his occupation throughout all of this? He's an engineer. Okay. So he had a very good job. And then also I was ordered like part of that injustice and part of using the system. I was ordered to pay child support. So that is also why I say the abusers used the systems. All the things that he accused me of, he did that. But also keeping me financially poor makes it gives him always the upper hand. So I was from the Netherlands. I was a nurse, but I couldn't use my diploma in the United States. So I had no credit. So I could not even get electricity. I had to fight like, because there was no credit. I didn't know anything about credit. And he destroyed my credit before I knew anything about it. So I I was so at the bottom of the bottom and he had all the upper hands and he can totally use that. So he had a good job. So he had the house because I had to flee. He... He cre- he went to the, the, the pastors and talked about me and he had free reigns. Like I was in the shelter for three months. So I had no idea what he did those three months. So when I, then you come back, he already set it up. And so that is what people like pastors, police, they do not understand that, that just by leaving, it's not finished. He already set it up that he he created a good good image in the community. He has a good job. He, they have money. They get a good lawyer. I had a legal aid lawyer. And so I couldn't afford a lawyer because I, I had no money. I had zero money. My friends, when I fleed, I had a friend from Texas and she, she, sended me, she bought a tent for me and I camped for three weeks while I figured out where to go for a shelter. And so she paid for the campground. So I, I honey, I, wanna, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I want to, to our listeners, I think that this story, our cognitive dissonance has already kicked in, right? Cognitive dissonance says there's no way I can't do it. In fact, I can't finish the podcast. It's just too much because what can I do? And um, it's not just a one-off story either. As you're talking about this, we are supporting a woman financially who's um, we work with with the Exchange Collaborative who she's lived in a hotel because her ex-husband, who's still a pastor, uh, helped someone uh, vandalize her house and flood it. And then he has sued her two times and is trying to get all the money he can from her, even though she has nothing left. Um, And so the fact that you were sued or from him because he got full custody, he could get child support from you. 
these kind of things, unfortunately, there's not even just three of these stories. This is happening around our country. And when you say educating judges, I would hope that if you're listening to this and you know someone who's in law enforcement in the medical field or is a judge, forward this podcast um, because it has to be the people who have the the control and power and and you know, to do something about it. And that's why we try to get this out to pastors and board members and people over pastors to hear these things so that they are made aware, which we could call educated or we could call awareness. Either one is that it breaks the curse of what's happening in the darkness and behind the scenes. And we have to remember that, I mean, we can speak for the pastor side of it um, or the influencer side of it. You typically... Uh, to be successful in front of a crowd of people, you are charismatic and you can convince people of things. A lot of these husbands uh, will paint a picture of their wife early on. Like she's just at home, you don't really know her, you haven't seen her for three years. So then anything they say about you can be believed because you didn't have your own voice in their life. So just for listeners who have hung on this long, there are some people that this story, Henny's story needs to be forwarded and shared because I love that after, is this been a, has this been a 13 year battle? It has been a 13 year battle. Yes. And, but it has a good end because God is good and faithful. Come on. I love just to hear you say that because while, while Sonny was talking, I was in my mind thinking, Oh my God, like, please tell me that there's a silver lining around this. Cause it's what's interesting and depressing is that even though you distanced yourself from him and you, you were able to obviously put a stop to the physical abuse cause you weren't, in his proximity, he continued to be abusive to you by doing the things that you're talking about with your credit, with your finances, with being in a tent. And it almost feels, and the fact that you didn't have the ability to have your kids back around you, my natural inclination, and I don't want this to sound naive, but my natural inclination would have been, I'll just give up. I would rather be abused physically than go through this kind of abuse and that no one can see that abuse that's going on. And it's so your, your courage and your tenacity is so admirable. So finish with your story. We didn't want to interrupt. It just was, it's a, it's so much to take in Henny that it's, it's, you just go, Oh my gosh. So please, please continue and tell us how it ends. Well, so I, the reason why I wanted to start with all the bad things is that you, can see how people created this picture of me and they made assumptions over the situation. And based on that, they made decisions that really destroyed my life and my children's life. Mm -hmm. But those were professionals. And so they, from their professional opinion, like, but even to pastors, that pastors were like, they questioned if I spoke the truth, but they also were like, well, she lost her children. So there must be something wrong with me. So one of the things why I wanted to share the situation is because people, they look at you at the circumstances, they see you. And so they're, they looked all at me like there's something wrong with this woman. There's, she must have done something wrong. And so it was something with me. So I, and then I didn't get any help from, I reached out, I knocked at so many pastors and in churches and I reached out to so many people, but everybody felt like they had to distance themselves because of what they assumed there has to be something wrong with me. So that made me that I didn't, I didn't matter to nobody. I didn't value to anybody. I, so I was at a place that to the world, I didn't matter. I wasn't important. Nobody saw anything good in me, yet I knew the truth. And so 
this is where the good part comes in that there was so much injustice in my world, so much unfair, so much wrong. If I would dwell on that, I was really at a point that my I got heart problems. I couldn't take that anymore. And so I decided at that point that, okay, if I want to survive this for the sake of my children, I need to let go of all the injustices. Is it unjust what the judge did? Yes. Is it unjust that the church who's supposed to help me abandoned me? So unjust. Is it unjust that friends are not helping me? Very unjust. But to dwell on that is not going to help me at all. So what I did was like, okay, I am a Christian and I believe in God and I know that God is good. So in the midst of all the bad things, I said, okay, God, if everything is so bad, but there is one thing that I know that you are a good and a faithful God and that you have victory on the cross, you have victory over abuse, you have victory over injustice, you have victory over lies, you have victory over manipulation, you have victory over systems that not work. And so Jesus, I am going to hold on only on that part. And so in the beginning of my story, I was like, okay, um, I was fighting for custody through my divorce. And then I thought, okay, now, now God is going to do it. And then it didn't happen. And then my situation with my daughter, and it was like, now God is going to do it. And it didn't happen. And so I came in my 13 year um, journey, I came to learn that God is good and faithful, but I should not put a time frame on when God is going to deliver me. And so I, I came to a point that I had to let it all go. That, okay, I wanted to be delivered yesterday. I wanted to have my children back yesterday. So I had to say to myself and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to, no matter what, no matter how evil my ex-husband is going to be, the lies that he spread, how many people are not going to believe me. I know that you see it all. You know that I spoke the truth. That So I'm going to choose to be faithful to you in the unseen. And so that is the one thing that I told my children to all the 13 years. I said, in the waiting, we are going to be faithful to Jesus. And so I say that, I said it all the time. And my children would say, it takes really long, mommy. And then I said, you know, but Joseph, I love the story of Joseph because Joseph had to wait for so long in jail, but then God restored him and he ruled the nations and he helped so many people. And so I told him, my children that all the, all the time, I said, Joseph was faithful in the waiting. And it's like, we don't tell the people about in Sunday school or in Bible studies, we don't go about how horrible it must be for David to wait all these years. And so for me, that is what I kept on. I was like, okay, Joseph's story did not end in the jail, abandoned and forgotten by all. So I was like, Jesus, my story is not going to end here. So in the midst, I just, in my, alone in my living room, I would just sit there and put worship music on. And I would say, Jesus, I am going to be faithful to you. I am going to believe in you. I trust in you. And I know you are good. Even when everything was so bad in my life, I just sat on my couch all by myself alone. It was just really literally, it was just me and Jesus. I would just say, Jesus, you are going to redeem it all. And I don't know how. And so I learned that, okay, I I only work like a $10 job. And then I had to pay child support from that. So I had only $240 every two weeks. So I would be like, Jesus, if you can create the, the world and you are the creator, then you can also take care of me that here I have only $240. My rent is $625. I have electricity and I could, I said, Jesus, you're going to take care. And by miracle, 
I made it every month. And so I would call up for, I would pick out this month, I would pay the electricity, that and that. And then the next, then I would ask the other bills if they please would give me grace. And so God, I think through it all, God sustained me that I did, was I a millionaire? No. But did I drown? I did not drown. So every when I tell people this story, people like, how did you make it with $240? I'm like, I don't know. I really literally made it every month. I And then so eventually I decided that the finances were so hard. So then I worked double shift. For a whole year, I worked every single day. I worked 16 hours. So God gave me then the strength to be really persevering and say, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to get out of this pit. He is not going to get me with keeping me poor. And so I worked so many hours so that I could pay all my bills. (laughs) So if you imagine... I had to work many hours so I could pay all my bills, but that's how I got myself that I could pay all my bills. And now I am in the, and then I would constantly change jobs because I I started with 10 and then I got 12 and then I got 15. And so I built it little by little. I had to work myself up so I could pay my bills. And then through a miracle, then I was able to buy a little, uh, I bought a condo last year. So proud of myself. I bought a condo and I'm so proud because now I'm at the point that I'm not rich, but I can pay all my bills. I am making it. I went from all the way from the bottom that now I can make my bills and I don't have any debt. I I didn't use credit cards. I didn't do wild credit. And so that's why I feel like you stay faithful to God. You do, you honor God, even when nobody acknowledges, even when nobody looks at you, when nobody gives you a compliment, when nobody even cares, you're going to do what's right by God. And I got even two jobs so I could pay him child support. I was like, okay. I am going to, I'm ordered to pay child support. I'm not going to complain about it. God is going to take care of the injustice. So to be so faithful to God in everything, even in the un- unseen, you just continue to be faithful to God at the end. And even I know it took 13 years, but really I have a cute little house. I have a good job. I have friends again. And I am working on getting my children back soon. Henny, we were on mute, both of us, because we're both sitting here sobbing. Um, But can you tell us now with the kids and has something changed with the judge or how are you able to have the kids again? Yeah, so one one of the things that I worked on through the years was he destroyed my reputation. So for all these people who were not educated, he created this view of Henny. So I had to show the world, basically, who Henny really was. <laughs> so that's, and then to build up an, an reputation takes time. So through the 13 years, I think now I, I, that's like part of God's redeeming story that now, like all the work that I do as the state chapter leader, the awareness that I bring, the, the connections that God brings on my path. It is like amazing that a lot of people are like, how do you do that? And I think that is like part of God's redeeming plan that a lot of things like when I try to get that law passed, a lot of people said, oh, that is impossible. That's not going to work. Nobody wants to listen. And so, but God just opened doors for me that when I talked to the U.S. representative, she she gave me a hug and she said, I will read this and I promise I will read this. And she really did. And she put, I already had a bill written out that they had from New York. And so all she had to do was copy it and change it to the laws of uh, Ohio. And so God just opened doors and gave gives me opportunity. And 
and I talk now with so many people. And so people are getting to know me in the community. So I think that through that, all the work and the restoration that God did of showing who I am, I think now it's really hard for him to keep up that I am this unstable and crazy and evil woman because now so many people, they know me and there is, I'm not that person at all. Is there a new judge on your case, Henny, that's reversed any of this? No, there is, it's still the same judge. But what I did was a big problem what the what is in family court is they use parental alienation. So that is the big word that uh, abusers use. So I was a parental alienator. So, but the U.S., there is a research from the U.S. Justice Department how that is used in domestic violence cases and how that just hurts children and children get ordered by, they're like 58,000 children in the United States ordered by the court to live with abusers. And there are like 7,000 children in Ohio that are court ordered to live by abusers because judges see them as the mother, as parental alienators. So that that research really proves with facts because with in the court system, you need a, a sobbing story. Nobody cares about a sobbing story. You need to bring facts. So I brought, I made that research part of my, my case. And so I, my lawyer didn't want to do it. So we separated ways. And so I filed my own appeal by myself. And I knew that I would never, I am not a lawyer and appeals is really hard, but all I needed was to be that part of my case. Because then it would be very hard for his lawyer to bring up the parental alienation because that would open a whole other discussion of the research that I made part of my case that they did not want to talk about. So I knew like, okay, the lawyer can do and the judge that did deny my, my appeal, but it is it became part of my case. So that's kind of how I did it. To I had to get all this parental alienation. I had to get that stopped. And so that's how I did that. Wow. It's, I have to say, I have been uh, using my voice to earn a living for, 25 plus years and I can't tell you uh, I couldn't count on one hand the amount of times that I've heard someone's story and it's left me speechless it is and, uh, yeah, it, that's yeah. why I do um, it. it it's uh heartbreaking and uh and then I would I would piggyback that with in 30 years of being a believer, I have uh, been blessed to hear from some of the great pastoral communicators of the world. And, and I couldn't tell you another message that I have heard other than what you've shared on this podcast today that has been more uh, challenging or encouraging which is such a weird thing to say that it would be encouraging in such pain. I feel your pain uh, through the through the microphone, but to hear your courage for you to say that you decided to let go of all the injustices, for you to for to hear you say, I decided that I'm going to be faithful in the unseen. It's um. Wow. It, it's not, I think that yeah. is, that's about prosecution and injustice. I think that's what it does to a person. It takes off all the layers and it's, and then it's only the bare you. And so then you have a choice in the midst of your suffering. You have a choice. Are you allowing the enemy and the evil to destroy you? Or you're going to make a choice like, I am not going to let it 
destroy me. And so that is like a choice that I made that I, if I was going to be destroyed person, then evil won, then evil had the victory. So I was like, me surviving this is, is oh, this is overcoming evil. So this is also like, you need to also see the spiritual battle in 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 that part. That I I think that is really what I learned. That fighting all these injustice out of the flesh, we as human beings, we have only an ability to how much we as a human being can do, and so we can only get this far. But that getting this far, what Henny could do, would not fix my solution. And so I did come at a point that my problems were so big and I had no clue anymore what to do. But in that point that I was like, okay, God, but if you, you are or a liar or you are truthful and I know that you are not a liar. So if this is so horrible and you say you are a good God and you are not a liar then this is where, this is the moment I said to God, I said, this is the moment, God, that you need to do your God thing. You need to come through for me. Because I said, this is more that I can handle, but you are God. So God, so what I did was with the situation that was way bigger than me, I first, I started with God. So first, you need to let go of all the knowledge what you know about God. Because knowing about God is not going to get you to, it's very small. So I started really spending time with God in my loneliness to seeking God. And God revealed me how big he was, how loving he was, how able he was. So in the midst of my, like I was standing in front of Mount Everest of problem. God showed me that, you know, this is who I am. Yeah, I think what's interesting, Henny, is that now you're in a role of advocacy, but really now you're really a missionary now. Not that you weren't a missionary before, but you're a missionary and God's just changed your mission field. And so, you know, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in accidents. And for you to have reached out to us off of our podcast, uh, I got to just say, I'm so blessed by the fact that you would do that. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad to have let a, a little bit of our story be interlaced and, and connected with your story. And so I'm grateful for you. I'm praying for you. I know that that sounds very trite at times, but it's not tongue in cheek for us. I, I want you to know that we love you. And we're praying for you. And uh, I mean, metaphorically, we see you because yes. we literally can't see you because our computer <laughs> wouldn't let your picture come up on the screen. And I don't think that's by accident. So I want you to know that even though we can't see your face in our computer, we see you and we're, we're, we're with you and we're in your corner. And so like, if we could just end with maybe because you've given so many very great practical steps. But what I'm wondering is, is there like a phone number? Is there uh, an email, a website, something that, that somebody who's in the situation that you're in right now, that maybe something you've learned that could cut out some of the arduous steps that you had to go through? Is there any anywhere that you could point them before we close out? Well, my organization that I'm the state chapter leader of is the Stop Abuse Campaign. It is not a Christian organization, but we really, they, we do a lot of good work with domestic violence. So that is a good place to go. And then we can help you to get connected with other good organizations yeah. in your state to get resources. Is there is there a website for that that you can give? Yes, it's if you type in the Stop Abuse Campaign, it will come up. Perfect. Well, Henny, thank you for the time and for the challenge and for drying out my tear ducts for an afternoon, I just sat and I've just cried through so much. It's very unprofessional, I know, to do a podcast and speak through your tears, but it's just, it, it, you can't help it when you hear your story. And so if you're listening to this and, and you're someone 
who is going through a situation like Henny's, no matter how intense it is, no matter uh, where you are along in that journey, can I just say from her lips to your ears, follow some of the advice that Henny's given, let go of the injustices, be faithful in the unseen, but don't stop. You are the same person and people at some point, God sees what you're going through. And so reach out to her, reach out to us. We want to help you. We want to love you because no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, there is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call The Reserve, uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting, we're hosting the betrayed, we're restoring the betrayer. Uh, and so now we have a campus to do that on, a a 20-acre property to do that on, as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground, but I feel <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, they gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And the, someone had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us, give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith. 
and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're gonna give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're gonna give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're gonna give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.